Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, Horticulture Educator with University of Illinois Extension, coming at you from Macomb, Illinois, and we have got a great show for you today. I am stuck to everything covered in syrup. Um, your resident uh, waffle expert here today. Um, it is our Halloween episode, and so uh, I am dressed up uh, in the height of fashion, I would say. I have spent uh, weeks and weeks putting this costume together. Um, and then I, I ordered something online and, and this showed up. So um, I'm a waffle. If you're listening, we'll leave a link below for you to go and watch this on YouTube. And you know, I am not doing this by myself. I am joined as always every single week by horticulture educator, Yukon Cornelius in Jacksonville. Yukon, uh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's good to see you, Waffle Man. <laughs> it's good to see you, uh, Prospector. Um, it, you have a friend behind you. <laughs> I decided the, the bumble came with for the podcast, so it should well, be good. Well, very good. So have you been prospecting recently? No, I haven't, no. I haven't had time. Maybe no. maybe this weekend I'll get to some prospecting once it cools off. What's it's too hot. It's too hot right now for this. It is too hot. Ah, there it is. What's it taste like? Doesn't he lick it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. So you are the spitting image of Yukon Cornelius. So that this is this is the best thing that can happen right now. Um, a waffle and Yukon Cornelius sitting here chatting on a podcast. <laughs> Figured I might as well do it before my beard turns completely white and I don't have to switch to Santa Claus. So That's right. Yes. Well, at least you come built in with everything you need. So, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, today, uh, Ken Johnson, we will be uh, chatting about some spooky plant diseases. Maybe some things that have happened in history that uh, might have written uh, or, or changed the course of, of, of things that were to be. And so, but that's how they are now. And so here to talk to us about some of these spooky plant diseases, we have Dr. Chelsea Harbach from Iowa State University. I don't know if I should say Royal Academy, but Chelsea, welcome to the show. <laughs> Hi, Chris. Hi, Yukon. Hello. Well, we are so happy to have you here, Chelsea. And could you describe to our, our listeners, our viewers can see you, but describe to our listeners, uh, who are you and what are you wearing today? Um, so uh, I'm Chelsea. I'm, uh, as you mentioned, here at Iowa State University. I might look familiar. Um, I've done a couple podcasts with these guys before when I was a commercial egg extension educator for University of Illinois. Um, I um, got a new job almost, almost exactly a year ago. My first day here at Iowa State as the plant disease diagnostician was on Halloween of last year. Um, I didn't dress up last year. I'm going to dress up this year, and this is what I'm going to wear. <laughs> Same thing I'm wearing now, which is my corgi costume. It's just kind of my my default go-to corgi onesie that is complete with the tail and everything. Got to have the tail, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just a little, just a little one. Yeah. Well, it gets in the way as you're looking at the microscope and you're trying to get <laughs> yeah. comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, well, very nice. Well, well, Ken and I, we visited you recently, Chelsea, and um, we just wanted to say we really did enjoy uh, checking out your new digs. 
Um, you have a fantastic operation there um, over at Iowa State University in their diagnostician clinic. Um, and we, we saw so much and we were, we were very excited. So we're happy that you're still crossing the river uh, to Illinois to chat with us uh, today about plant disease. Well, Illinois is my home state, so I will continue to hang out with you guys as long as you'll have me. As well, won't you do that? Yes. <laughs> and as Ken says, the corn tastes better here. So, um, <laughs> um, well, Ken, I guess we should be diving into our spooky topics for this week. So would you mind kicking us off, please? Yeah, so I think that the first one we're going to talk about is um, Salem witch trials and how plant disease or ergot, ergot, ergo, however you want to <laughs> pronounce it, influenced all of that. Yeah, so this is, um, you know, kind of debated by historians, but um, but there's a lot of people who believe that the Salem witch trials were a result of um, a plant disease epidemic um, in rye in the 1600s. So, um, you know, Salem witch trials obviously happened in Salem, Massachusetts. Um, the year of like where most of the burnings took place was like late 1692. Uh, by uh, May 1693, 19 people had been burned at the stake. Um, and people like plant pathologists, some historians think that um, it's possible that conditions were favorable in um in 1691 the year that the rye would have been sown and then harvested um following in 1692 um that the conditions were favorable for um for a disease that's caused by a fungus um to proliferate on the rye crop and since it was early enough um in human history uh, where we didn't have any concept or knowledge of the fact that uh, plants get sick. Um, it's likely that people, as they were harvesting this rye, saw um, these blackened kernels. Kernels. They're also like blackened and elongated, um, and didn't think anything of them of it. Um, you know, had no idea that that was um, that was a fungus that they were harvesting and um, processing with the rest of the rye. And so, um, so this ergot, um, like I said, is caused by a fungal pathogen. Um, the pathogen is Claviceps purpurea. And um, this pathogen produces a couple of um, alkaloids, uh, lysergic acid and ergotamine. Um, lys lysergic acid is, um, like a precursor to LSD. So these are both like hallucinogenic, like mycotoxins. And if um, if the, the black fungal structures are harvested with the rest of the grain and processed into bread, you have obviously people eating contam uh, mycotoxin contaminated bread. And um, as these are hallucinogenic, some of the other things that this fungus would cause um, included uh, convulsions, spasms, the, hallucina the hallucinations, uh, kind of like a skin crawling sensation and erratic behaviors. 
Um, so all these things, which, you know, people could think that there's something, you know, prior to a lot of science, um, if you see these kinds of symptoms in a person, or um, you might not know that they, um, they're having a reaction to something they ate, um, you're going to think that there's something supernatural going on with them. So people thought, um, people thought witch back then. Um, now, again, uh, this is kind of debated. If you go to the Salem Witch Trials website, they have a whole post about um, debunking the like contaminated grain theory or something like that, um, where they talk about how, you know, if the grain was contaminated, Theoretically, everybody who's eating that rye bread would be getting contaminated um, bread. Um, there is a page that suggests that um, the the erratic behavior was seen in young girls whose immune systems hadn't fully developed, but that doesn't explain why. Like, why don't we see it in young boys too? So. Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of kind of debated whether this is something that actually happened, um, but um, the the idea is pretty sensational, and so I think that's why there's been um, the 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 story has persisted, um, and it's so long ago that we can't um, we have no way of saying like definitively yes or no this didn't happen, so people continue to to run with this story and it is a fun story i mean it's a fun theory i think that happens to me every time i eat honey oat so yes mm -hmm. <laughs> i sure hope not because the disease so it's <laughs> or, so it's actually um it's actually so it's called rye induced ergotism um which is also known as saint anthony's fire and you can get um gangrene um, as a result of um, ingesting ergot. Um, so it's uh, like like potentially like life-threatening, um, not only, you know, if you're perceived as a witch, um, but also like, you know, if you have a limb that turns gangrenous. Um, so yeah, hopefully it doesn't happen to you every time you eat your bread. So we're... Were they blaming the the behavior of the young girls that had eaten the bread? Were they the ones, the young girls, the ones being persecuted, or were they? Wow! So the, mm -hmm. I thought maybe they were pointing to someone else, saying you're hurting the young girls, but it was the young girls. Wow. Hmm. That that's my understanding of what I've read. Um, is that their yeah their erratic behavior was like oh they are doing witchy stuff. Witches. So mm -hmm. before we freak everybody out, there's there's safeguards <laughs> against this nowadays, right? Yes, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, now we know what what ergot is. It's really easy to um, separate um, ergot infected kernels from um, from regular kernels. Um, so you know, the the any any grain that goes for processing goes through like a seed cleaning process to separate out those foreign bodies, which would include those um, fungal bodies that are called sclerotia um, from the seed. Um, and there's even so sometimes growers will get like, if you have, well, okay, so we have fungicides, which help, 
um, you know, a timely application of fungicides can help. Um, but when um, when the grain gets harvested, if you take it to the elevator, um, you know, they're gonna kind of rate the quality of your your um, like lot of seed, and that includes um, you know the amount of foreign bodies, which includes like cracked grain and and also um, sclerotia, those fruiting bodies or not they're not fruiting bodies, they're just fungal bodies. But yeah, yeah. So we don't have to worry about it anymore. However, yeah. I have heard stories of um, uh, so there's a I can't find the video online anymore, but um, on the American Phytopathological Society, um, retired plant pathology professor from University of Illinois, Wayne Peterson, um, who was a field crops pathologist, told a story about how he had um, he had ergot kernel or ergot sclerotia in his lab. And um, and because he was also a teacher, um, so you know he like kept these things in a sealed container for class. Um, but he got a call from um, University of Illinois Police Department one night, um, saying that like a student that worked for him um, was like threatening his roommate, um, saying that like he was a demon or something and that like he had to like kill him. So, so something like that to that effect. And, and you know, they were like, we interviewed this guy and he said that, um, you know, what he took was something from your lab. And Wayne was like, oh, this guy took some of my ergot sclerotia and had a bad trip. And um, yeah, so I think ergot sclerotia are probably kept a little, um, like if people keep them for educational purposes, I, I, I bet that people probably um, store them a little bit more securely <laughs> nowadays. Oh, fascinating. So now in my head, I'm seeing all of these puritanical witch hunter people, they're just tripping on some bad bread. It's like everybody Basically. was was really mm -hmm. messed up. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a theory. Wow. So like, you know, if if maybe maybe it affected young people more um if they didn't have, you know, as developed of an immune system and me, I like it makes you wonder like if this theory holds, like were there some like older more mature people who were just having like a super mild trip um mm -hmm. <laughs> that like you know, didn't have all the convulsions and stuff that maybe younger people did. I don't know. I don't know. We'll never know. But it's definitely a fun, uh, a fun theory to try and explain what happened back then. Because otherwise, like, I don't know, there's not a lot of reason for what happened. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Build a time yeah. machine. Go back and find mm -hmm. it. Yeah, right. I don't, think I, I don't know if I want to go back there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I do either. Bring your own oh. bread. Yeah, bring your own <laughs> bread. Yeah, I, like I can't drink the water. I'm not going to eat anything you give me. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. well, okay, Chelsea. Well, let's let's switch gears here and let's talk about the the Irish potato famine and just just how did that? I guess let's talk about how did that come about and then how like as i also want to kind of dig into like how you as a pathologist 
dive into diagnosing plant disease. And, and so can you give us a backstory for the Irish potato famine, please? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I, it's funny. I learned about the Irish potato famine in high school. I don't know, maybe even grade school. Um, but when it was taught to me, um, at that point, like they never mentioned like, okay, there was something that happened to the potatoes, but they never like said what. So like, I had no idea what, what plant pathology was until my second semester of junior year of college. Um, and that's when I learned that the Irish potato famine um, was uh, a result. Well, so there's there's a multitude of like political things that went into um, kind of the um, the the situation that caused the Irish potato famine to be as impactful for the Irish as it was. Um, but um, you know, at its at, at the Irish potato famine like wouldn't have happened if it weren't for a plant pathogen. Mm -hmm. So, um, and the English also, those well, yeah, two yeah, things yeah. together. Well, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Like it, it was definitely like, like basically a recipe for disaster between mm -hmm. the political stuff from the British, um, as a result of some of the political stuff, the Irish were, um, pretty reliant on, potato as like their sole source of sustenance potato is like like one of very few foods on which like a human can like like actually like survive by just like eating this one thing and they were like very easy to grow in like any environment any kind of soil um uh, they were highly uh, like high yielding um and you know would store over winter so they were like for the Irish at that time, a really good source of food given all the political stuff. Um, the unfortunate thing is that um, they were relying on one single cultivar of potato, the lumper, which is like, if you go look at pictures of the lumper, like it is actually like a lumpy potato. It's kind of funny. Um, so basically they had a monoculture across Ireland of a single type of potato. One, one like set, like just, it was just homogenous. Like there's, yeah, you're, you're really putting yourself um, at a big risk there. So um, they're not quite sure when the, um, the pathogen that causes the Irish potato famine arrived in Ireland. Um, they believe it was sometime after 1842, likely 1844. Um, but the first, the first um, like crop that they noticed a significant reduction in yield was in 1845, when they had, um, I believe, like two thirds less, or like two thirds of the crop was like gone because of the, the pathogen. Um, and then the following year, um, they lost three quarters of the crop. And, um, and then the, the environmental conditions like were not as great for the disease to occur in 1847, but because of the low yields in the years prior, they didn't have as much seed to plant. 
Um, so even though they um, had better conditions, they still didn't have enough potatoes to sustain the population. Um, and then in 1848, they lost like a third of their yield um, because of the, the pathogen. So, um, so for a population that relied almost exclusively on on this single food source, um, you can imagine the um, the devastation as far as hunger. Um, they say um, like of the people that actually died in Ireland, um, most of the deaths were actually related to um, like illnesses as a result of being malnourished. Um, so, you know, you not only do you have deaths just because of starvation, you also have deaths because of illness related to being hungry. Um, and then there were a lot of people that emigrated from Ireland at the time as well. Um, and then um, some other refugees that, you know, had to find elsewhere to live. Um, so they, they, they lost about like half of their population at the time, I think they lost um, 4.5 million between deaths and, um, and emigration. Um, and it's something that, um, I mean, the, the Irish population um, only like within like the last two or three years got back up to the pre-potato famine population. Um, so it's been something that, you know, the, the nation has struggled to like, you know, build back from um, with like a lower population. Um, but it also brought about um, kind of the, the birth of plant pathology. So um, this was um, from this uh, like disaster, I'll say, um, a scientist uh, named Anton de Berry, um, I believe he was a Scottish scientist, um, decided to look into this problem a little bit more. And he's the one that found um, found the pathogen. I think at the time he called it a fungus, um, but later we would, um, you know, separate fungi from oomycetes. Um, but he he found the the pathogen or the the problem with the potatoes um, that was causing the um, the low yielding potatoes to be um, what we'll call a fungal-like organism called Phytophthora infestans. Um, so, uh, oh, and like another tricky thing um, about this disease and this problem is that the the like Irish would harvest seemingly healthy potatoes that would later rot in storage. Um, so you know they might think that they had enough um, had enough uh, to overwinter, but the the pathogen, um, you know, is just kind of lurking and can still cause issues after harvest. So, um, so yeah, Anton DeBerry was the first, um, we call him the father of plant pathology. He was the first to do, um, go through a process that we call um, Koch's postulates. Um, this is a, this is a like basic um, concept in microbiology um, where, um, uh, but for plants, we'll say you like observe a plant with a problem um, and like note its symptoms. You isolate a pathogen 
from that tissue um, and characterize it. And then you take that pathogen that you've isolated and infect a healthy plant and, um, and hopefully observe the same symptoms as you did in the first step. And then um, you re-isolate the pathogen. So you're like confirming that, oh yeah, this is the thing that's causing the symptoms I'm seeing. So um, so yeah, that was the first, the first incidence that we had in history of Koch's postulates for plant pathogens um, and led to a whole field of study on what makes plants sick. And, and that's why you're sitting there now in a corgi outfit and as, do you use that same process, Koch's postulate, uh, even today? So in the diagnostic lab, um, we're, we're using what scientists have like identified on plants in the past. Um, so we, we generally know like what pathogens cause disease on different plants. Um, so when we isolate, um, or observe symptoms on a plant, um, but generally isolation um, and we can characterize whatever we isolate. And if we um, we know, or we can, asso we can associate um, things that we've isolated or detected with that plant and like the symptoms make sense, you know, imagine everything, um, that's where we stop. We don't have to go through the re-inoculation and re-isolation um, process. Um, because we have kind of an established list of, or like established, established known pathogens causing disease on different plants. Um, however, if we were to, um, you know, get a sample that um, we isolated something that's known to be a plant pathogen, but not typically known to happen on that host, um, that's when we might go through Koch's postulates. And then we'd also do some molecular um, identification um, to complement that. And that um, that's where we get the incidents or like the, the publications of um, scientists putting out um, what we call first reports, um, where it's like the first report of this pathogen causing this disease on this host. Um, and um, those don't happen as often as they probably used to. They do publish them by state. So, you know, it depends on what state you're in, um, but um, pathogens aren't moving a whole lot to have, um, you know, those happen very frequently. Say, so, and this disease is still around today, right? And it doesn't just affect it potatoes. Correct. It it affects uh, solanaceous plants. So your potatoes, uh, tomatoes, um, I believe it also infect, or affects eggplant, um, but I know for sure tomato and potatoes. Um, I believe in Wisconsin, um, they have like a late blight watch, or, or sorry, yeah, this is late blight. So um, there are two, two blights on solanaceous crops, early blight and late blight. Early blights caused by a real fungus, late blights caused by this fungal-like organism um, and can be pretty like devastating. So I believe in Wisconsin, they have some kind of a like late blight watch website where you can like, cause they grow a lot of potatoes in Wisconsin. Um, so, um, so yeah, it's something that we still have to worry about.
And then potatoes, it's so easy to spread because you cut a potato in half, boom, you got two potato plants. And yep. that, that's just how it's so easy to propagate that. But they're genetically identical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's how they think um, it got to Ireland. So obviously, the or well, not obviously, I'll say, um, if you don't know, potatoes, um, like they originated from Peru, um, from South America. And um, so, you know, they weren't originally, they're not like native to Ireland. Um, but because of like the increase in like global trade and like movement of, of stuff in the 1800s, um, they believe that, um, so um, this disease, once I figured out it, it was a disease, was pretty bad on, on potatoes in the Eastern United States in um, the early 1840s, I forget which years. Um, and then they they suspect that some seed stock or something was moved from the Eastern United States to Ireland um, that was infected without knowing it. Um, that and that's likely how the pathogen um, found its way to Ireland to cause to cause the devastation. And you know, with any with any plant disease, um, having um, you have to have the right environmental conditions for the disease to be um, be really bad. And so it just, um, I mean, that that plays into like the recipe for disaster, but that's something that you can't control as the environment. It just happened to be that there were a few years out of a handful of years that were really favorable to the disease and it just caused I, I can't imagine the amount of like pain and suffering that that caused. Mm -hmm. So, okay, random off the wall question. So we spend billions of dollars on our modern day kind of grain genetics that help to feed the world, do all that. Is that ever a risk for those? That some pathogen just coming through, wiping it out if if the environment is favorable for something? Or is that your job? You're like frontline <laughs> making sure this doesn't happen. Well, I, I believe that, you know, they do have like resistance um, in like potato and tomato. Um, and the, the like development of like epidemiological models to help predict when these things might be evident in addition to, you know, any like chemical sprays or um, seed treatments. Like we, we, and then like crop rotation, like we have a lot of tools now that we know that these things can happen and that we can't control the environment. We, we do a lot of other things to try and um, prevent it, limit it, um, or at least like be aware of when it might happen so we can implement different measures to manage it. But the world needs so, Chelsea. Mm -hmm. or like <laughs> pathologist <laughs> i'm not the potato person <laughs> i'm calling you every time <laughs> well and, and to further complicate it this may be getting into the weeds too much but isn't there different races and biovars and all that stuff too yeah that, that complicates yeah. the whole resistance and all that yep that's the same like uh I, i'm more familiar with like phytophthora and soybeans and yeah it's the same thing you've got like different um different races 
different um, like resistance genes in the the potatoes or tomatoes. Um, and yeah, there are some like some of those like genetic, um, what would we say call them like um, groups of the pathogen that of are of a like genetic makeup that are more problematic than others. Um, and yeah, yeah, it gets it gets complicated. Um, and I'm not a potato expert. I do remember learning about that though. Yeah, Never. I think it's like pretty pretty similar like across like Phytophthoras. All right, so I think we had one more disease that we're gonna talk about. And for me personally, I wouldn't be too upset if this happened, but- I'm terrified. Uh, <laughs> what about uh, coffee? Is there a disease of, of coffee that could cause some problems for us? Yeah, so this uh, this disease on coffee, the disease is called coffee leaf rust. Um, it's been around pretty much like as long as coffee. Um, and it is something that um, is becoming more problematic, um, largely with like climate change. Um, so we have primarily two different species of cultivated coffee. Um, in the world. We have Coffea arabica and Coffea conifera. Uh, arabica coffee or Coffea arabica we'll call arabica, Coffea conifera we call we'll call um, robusta. And um and this fungus that causes this coffee leaf rust affects both species of coffee as well as uh, up to 25 other species of cultivated coffee in the world. Um, so it's it's not discriminatory um, across like coffees that it affects. The the robusta um, cultivars are uh, tend to be more um, tolerant to to the fungus, but there's no complete resistance to the fungus. Um, and the coffea arabica is um, is the tastier coffee. Um, it's, uh, it's the one that is, um, cultivated at higher elevate, like needs to be cultivated at higher elevations, um, to, uh, or it's just like where it needs to be cultivated, but, but it's, it's just, it's the better tasting coffee. And this species is particularly susceptible to, um, the coffee leaf rust fungus, which is has like I think one of the coolest names of like any plant like plant pathogen Latin binomial. The the um, coffee leaf rust fungus is called Hemelia vastatrix, which just wow. sounds really cool. I love that name. <laughs> yeah, it's so cool. Um, and um. And so one of the the like tricky things, I don't know, there's just a bunch of tricky things with this fungus. So um, typically rust fungi um, have can have uh, like to complete their life cycle, they can either do it on one host, which they're called an autoecious uh, rust fungus, um, or they need two hosts to complete their life cycle. So then they're a uh, heteroecious host. Um, the weird thing about um, coffee leaf rust is that um, there's been no alternative host found 
but it does produce, um, so there are up to five spore types that rust can produce. Um, the uridinia spores are the bright orange ones um, that we tend to think of as like the rusty stuff. Um, the teleospores are, um, the uridinia spores turn into teleospore, like get, or eventually turn into teleospores. Um, and then the teleospores produce basidiospores. Um, you have sexual reproduction happening um, from uh, teleospore to basidiospore. Um, however, we've only ever um, observed um, the coffee leaf rust fungus on coffee. So we have the what theoretically should be um, a genetically um, like homogenous uh, fungus uh, and coffee leaf rust that actually isn't genetically homogenous, even though we can't find that alternative host where, you know, it would theoretically complete its life cycle and, you know, increase the genetic diversity of the fungus. Um, and so what um, some researchers have found is this, um, this, that they believe the um, Hemelia vastrix to be a what's called cryptosexual fungus, um, where um, they believe there's, there's like a hidden meiosis or like, you know, sexual reproductive um, uh, re or like interchanging of genes between nuclei uh, happening in the uridineal stage. So we have a fungus that, um, even though you would think it would be homogenous genetically is actually like, can be pretty diverse. Um, which can cause issues with, um, you know, fungicide resistance um, or even like breeding programs. Like if you're trying to breed resistance to the fungus, um, you still, you don't have like a single, um, a single genotype of the pathogen that you can try to breed resistance for. Um, and with climate change, um, this disease is becoming um, much harder to manage in coffee. Um, and I, I heard someone say on a podcast somewhere that like coffee farmers are saying that like, you know, we, we, we might only have like 30 harvests left, like before, like, you know, we, we just like can't do anymore uh, because of this this fungus. So um, it could be really, really devastating. I love coffee. I can't tell you if the caffeine actually does anything for me because I can drink coffee and take a nap immediately afterwards. I just love the flavor. Um, and I mean, coffee culture is huge in, in America and I would say all over the world. So it would be a really, really scary thing to uh, to lose coffee. What are we gonna and do? I don't know what we would do. You'd end up like me. <laughs> <laughs> and you're yeah, so high on life. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so coffee leaf rust is actually like the reason that. Um, like the the British are tea drinkers. Um, they um, they 
you know, colonized, um, that they called it Ceylon back in the day. Um, I believe it's modern day Sri Lanka um, and um, decided um, like there were like coffee houses, they call them um, back in the day in Europe where like sophisticated people would meet and like talk ideas and stuff, talk shop um, and they served coffee there. And so the British wanted to start growing coffee somewhere. They picked this island of Ceylon to grow coffee which happened to be a perfect environment for coffee leaf rust. Um, it decimated their coffee crop and um, they found um, that environment to be much better for growing tea. And so they gave up on coffee and became tea drinkers. Um, so I guess if the Brits can deal with it, everybody else can, but will we be happy about it? No. Nope. Mocha tea doesn't sound good. Yeah. No. <laughs> mm -mm. Give me a little yeah. chocolate in my tea. Yeah. <laughs> He's gross. Yeah. Too. So it's a um it's a scary thing. Um there's I mean, like other we could talk, you know, in another another day about some other like like there's a threat to bananas because of plant disease. There there's a threat to oranges because of a plant disease there's like like plant diseases um cause can cause uh some pretty big um i don't know i would say like shifts or changes in in you know the global um the global food system um especially with how global globalized we are now and but fortunately when that happens, we don't start burning people at the stake. So yeah, we know, we least, know a lot better. We've come that far. Yeah, yeah at least. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh my goodness. Can't can't say we've uh, we've done a lot more other than being able to distinguish between ergotism and witchcraft. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Every day I try. You know, I'm making little baby steps. So. <laughs> um, yeah, I shun my children constantly. <laughs> That's just because they come home with the flu. It's obviously was given to them by a some type of wizard. Um, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Well, that was a lot of great information about some spooky plant diseases, and uh, you've kind of primed us for a future spooky diseases with bananas and oranges and cacao. All that stuff is just yikes. Um, well, I will say the Good Growing Podcast is a production of University of Illinois Extension, edited this week by Ken Johnson. A special thank you, Dr. Chelsea Harbach. Thank you so much for being with us, coming across the Mississippi River into Illinois to chat with us today. Uh, thank you so much. Literally anytime. And can I plug real quick? My my friend and colleague has a podcast called I See Dead Plants. And he has an episode specifically on coffee leaf rust um, that if you want to know more about coffee leaf rust, I highly recommend listening to to that episode. It's really enjoyable. Oh, I'm biased. Yeah. Oh, I know you are. Yes, you, you kind of like those a lot. Um, yeah. And so we'll leave a link to I See Dead Plants uh, in the show notes below. I think when Ken and I visited, we actually met this gentleman he just emerged from his office after recording <laughs> an episode of i see dead plants so 
um, yes, it was. A, a, it's a good podcast. So folks, check mm-hmm. it out, and then come cool. and listen to the next one of these. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we don't make any money off of this. Not really. We just like we just like what you hear in our voices every day. Mm-hmm. And and Ken, thank you very much for being with me as always every single week. Uh, uh, this this week dressed as Yukon Cornelius from the Rudolph Show. Yes, thank you, Chelsea. Um, it's been fun. Yeah. Looking forward thank to doing this again. Thank you guys for having me. Yep. Anytime. And Chris, thank you. And let's do this again next week. Oh, we shall do this again next week. We are going to be talking about community tree care and how we can help train homeowners and arborists with an upcoming webinar series. Uh, we're going to be talking with Sarah Vogel and or Jenny Lee, uh, one of them or both of them. Uh, we will find out uh, next week. So listeners, thank you for doing what you do best, and that is listening. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, watching. And as always, keep on growing. I sound really smart right now. I don't know what you're talking about, but okay. I don't either. I don't remember. <laughs>